propaganda in my art? No way. Oops. Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real, made-up things. I'm your host, Dino, and today you'll be joining me as we have a discussion on the World Building Magazine's latest issue, The Arts. We will discuss the necessity for including the arts in your setting, and then give a brief overview of the content that is within this issue. Today joining me are Adam, BK, and Machinate, if you'd be so kind as to introduce yourselves. Hey, uh, my name's Adam. I uh, work here on the magazine as the vice editor-in-chief. Kind of just means I have a hand in a little bit of everything. And yeah, we got a chance to work on this issue for the arts. I was super excited about it, having come from... Uh, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi, I am BK Bass. I am the writing chair here at World Building Magazine, and I'm also an author of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and a publisher. Hello, hello. I'm a magnate, also as Ian I am the editorial chair here at World Building Magazine. I love video games, tabletop games, and world building, and I also like looking at pretty things, so the art issue was uh, very, very fun to work on. And I'm also glad to be here. Well, I'm happy you all are here. So for those not in the know, we are four of the six people who are the top administrators of the magazine. So we kind of all came together to just talk about the issue and that issue being the arts. And honestly, why are the arts are important and not in a save the art program at your local high school sense, but as in a world building your artists, because that could add some flavor to your world important. So just to get us started off on the right foot, what kind of parts of art do you guys like to include in your setting? And I don't mean just like drawings of your own, but actually in-world referenced art. A lot of my studies, as I mentioned, I was got a bit of an art and art history background uh, through college, and I really enjoyed the art history a lot more than I was expecting just really enjoyable for me to go through and I like injecting a little bit of that into my work uh, so for example uh, there's a scene in one of the stories that I'm working on where there are paintings of the various saints they're kind of godlike figures and they're all depicted differently and the most important ones are the largest, the least important ones are the smallest, and some are just outright missing. And so a character who knows about this religion can look at this piece and see, you know, here's uh, Saint Sed, Saint Aver, and they're these massive imposing figures. But then, you know, this one saint who they particularly identify with most isn't up there for some reason. And that kind of tells you a little bit something about the culture, the more you know about the religion and all that. Yeah, I like um, including art in my writing. Um, a lot of the same reasons as far as um, like portraying the culture, helping to set the tone, um, anything. And it can be little things like, um, like a sign on the front of a tavern. 
to uh, one of my books, Warriors of Understone, really delves into dwarven culture. So there's a lot in, in the city of Understone where there's statues and murals on the walls and things like that, that really the, the visual artwork really tells the story of their history. So it really gets you into their culture by, you know, the character walking through and seeing, you know, these things. Admittedly, I have not been big on, at least consciously, integrating art into my world building. Although I do it in kind of wider sweeps, like, oh, this is the type of art they do. I would say, like, um, very similar to Renaissance art, or it's more medieval in that kind of source style. But I don't do into massive detail. Uh, I think that's mainly because uh, I don't have an art background in some for the, for the most part, so I'm bad with descriptors for like actual art pieces. However, I do have um, one part that I do kind of use are um, sculptures in stone, and in my world building, that's mainly because um, what's that called? Survival and kind of lasting the test of time is a bit of a motif that I've been going for in in my uh, in my campaign setting. And it's a thing that's uh, it's a theme overall for the campaign is survival. So for for me, I guess I think of kind of these massive stone monoliths as being able to withstand whatever gets thrown at them, and so them kind of making it through the generations as sculptures of a bygone time gets to be in a sense exonerated, um, kind of emulated by present masses. Like they want to do sculptures that can also survive. That's a really cool uh, tie into the culture and a look at um, you know using art to show what's important to the people and what their priorities are. That's a really neat idea. Thank you. For me, I, I have to say that I love the idea of using art to show the past. And all of you guys have kind of really touched on this because I think this is where art excels in world building as a device. You know, Adam brought up his idea of using the saints icons gilded onto the ceiling mixed with bk i don't i don't know much about the book uh, about your book but i do know some other things that i could probably relate to that especially when it comes to dwarves and in other settings where you have these statues of heroes of the past and all this art that depicts their history as a people especially when you're coming in with culture you'd accentuate something like that yeah, that's that's right about on the line of what it's like. You know, there's like a like a hall of heroes with statues to past warriors, and a lot of it's about how the the warrior culture is kind of uh, held up on a pedestal in their culture. So there's a lot of like statues of warriors and depictions of battles and things like that. It's actually almost a, a satire on that though, because it's actually about somebody from a lower caste kind of trying to break the mold of that culture. That's a really cool way to approach it, especially when it's so seeped in the history of the past, breaking it. Yeah, yeah, it's like totally ingrained. Like the, the this culture is like you know this way, and it's been this way for a while, and nothing changes. And the book is all about coming along and breaking the mold and trying to make changes. So you could say they were like set in stone. <sighs> yeah, you could. Their ways were set in stone. I should put that as a tagline on it. But this segues into the the topic of why use art? Why why use it? And, and what is art really? Art, you know, there's a thousand different definitions for what pro people would probably consider art themselves. But you know, it's it's anything that people make, right? That doesn't have a purpose beyond expression. 
So I'm sorry. This is we can cut this if we need to, but there's this running joke with my friends and I. And because I took art classes, they constantly ask me, like they'll show me something and they'll be like, Hey, is this art? And my response will always be yes, because it has to be. <laughs> wow. And I was I, I very for for a brief time I lived in uh Vermont and there was this bridge down there. And it had this big sign on the front that said art. And I immediately took a picture of it and sent it to them. I'm like, guys, I found it. I found out what art is. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, you know, on that note, I actually think you would probably be the best person to answer that question, though. It's a really hard question to answer. That's why I hate it. I'm going to kind of... Uh, just going to kind of wing it here for a second. Uh, there's probably actual definitions for art, which I'm just not remembering too well, but <laughs> basically, you know, to... yeah, exactly. Like go Google it for yourself, you know, come and c- comment, leave us a review and tell us what art actually is. Okay. <laughs> dictionary says, no, I'm not actually going to say it. no going <laughs> anyway. So, I've always found art to be some form of creative expression uh, that more often than not communicates with an audience. Obviously, that's extremely vague and can take like an infinite number of forms. Uh, But, you know, art kind of does that already. We cover this a little bit in the issue that has come out. You know, we talk about different forms like painting and clothing and uh sculpture a little bit about like performing arts but we barely get into performing arts it's like one or two examples we barely get into photography barely get into music but there are a whole bunch of things that we didn't never got a chance to really cover and uh you know these issues aren't small um we're we're barely covering the most covered item, which is painting. It just takes on so many different forms and communicates in so many different ways, so many different messages ranging from free speech to oppressive uh, government messages and stuff. Like, you know, you look throughout history and propaganda posters are just as much art as like rococo french paintings uh which are these very light and airy pieces it's it's very hard to define is my point (laughs) um you did touch upon a, a really interesting idea though of art as a tool used by states and i mean even if you look back in time at something like the roman empire where emperors would spread statues of themselves deified as a god to instill loyalty. Yeah, that actually is one of the topics that we touch on in this issue. Um, one of the articles is art as propaganda. Yeah, so I really like art as propaganda. Uh, I think that the author did an amazing job with it. Uh, just, there's a lot of these examples kind of tossed throughout it one of my favorites uh was the play laces strata uh, it was written by 
uh, Athenian playwright, and basically, uh, this was 20 years into the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta, and just very briefly, uh, this guy who wrote it had written two prior anti-war performances. This was his third, and it was all about the women of both sides of the conflict just wanting it to be over. And so in order to make that happen, they agreed to withhold uh, sexual activities from their husbands uh, and lovers until the war ended. (laughs) And I just think that's a fantastic example of someone using a form of art, this uh, play that really gets people talking and thinking about, you know, the society as a whole. And yes, it's like kind of played here uh, as a humorous thing, but like the message is real. You can tell from the fact that uh, Aristophanes, and I probably butchered that pronunciation, but you can tell by the fact that uh, the author of the play just like, this is not the first time he's talked about this. This is the third anti-war play he's done. But yeah, that, that that example is just really fun. And, you know, you can read a little bit more detail in the, the article, but definitely I'd say if you're interested in that, just go look up Lisa Strada. You know, I just finished editing that article, so it's actually fresh on my mind. Um, Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I also think that article, um, brought up some very good examples that I want to connect back to Dino's first, uh, Dino's question is why is kind of art important? What, what about it makes it prominent in our world? And that is that uh, in the article itself, it's going to mention it, so I don't want to spoil it because y'all have to read it. Y'all do have to read it. But essentially art makes it, I don't want to say easy, but it's, I feel like it's more um, relatable. It's also a bit more accessible. I think of it this way: it's like a, there might be like a hundred different ways to say they were to say the word "dog," but if you see a picture of it and you've seen "dog" before, you'll probably know that as a dog. I think it's particularly important as well for places that have, let's say, stratification in education, because someone can come up with a beautiful piece of art, a poster or a painting. Someone can look at it and immediately immediately see the colors, the the way things are drawn, the way things are painted, and say that's a beautiful that's a beautiful piece of work. But if you were to give someone who can't read a book, they might not have the same uh, same reaction or same immediate reaction rather. So it's a it's a way to kind of break down barriers in a way that I don't think literature, for example, can quite uh, can quite do in the same manner. Yeah, I would have to agree that um, yeah, visual arts, paintings, things like that are definitely can be more accessible. But I think they have a harder time diving into really deep, intricate concepts and looking at them from different angles the way literature can. So they they both definitely have their own pros and cons. I think. No, I I definitely agree, and and I think at least in to kind of just take on topic, but still talk about this is that like in world building it's easier to reference a book and say what it's about than it is to try and describe what a famous painting looks like 
unless you're an artist. No. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> um, okay, I, fair. How would you describe the, ra- the the Raft of the Medusa? Okay, we've already done this. <laughs> so my ar- my argument to that is just that a famous painting is going to be determined by uh the culture that it's in so like for example to not focus on the raft of the medusa again uh look- looking at guernica by picasso that was a sort of a vision of the bombing of Guernica. And I think without that backstory and without people already be in, being interested in his style of work, which is very unrealistic. Like it's, you know, you look back at work from, for example, the Renaissance and people, you know, they're working toward realism. They're, you know, accenting a few things, but that is kind of the goal to push it more toward realism than not. Uh, some work that you see is photorealistic now, and it's just amazing to see. In Picasso, just kind of pushed against that, and people enjoyed that. So, number one, you have people already enjoying his style. Number two, you have people mourning the people lost at Guernica during the uh, bombing. And I don't know a ton about that piece of history, so I won't go too deep into it. But I think it's that combination of society being interested in the art style and having a reaction to the historical event, which made Guernica this huge, uh, memorable piece. Now, if he were working in the Renaissance instead, his style would be totally alien. Word might not have spread about the bomb about the attack as easily because they didn't have as easily uh, they weren't as easily able to communicate back then, at least not as quickly. Uh, so it, the point being, you know, one piece of work that is going to be famous in one location uh, would not necessarily be famous somewhere else, and so you kind of have to build up that culture in order to build up what is well-known and what is kind of pushed aside as a culture. You know what? That's fair. Because as you were saying all of that, I'm thinking, I agree with this. Because, for example, whenever someone tells me this is modern art, I don't get it. But simultaneously, I can respect why someone would call it art. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely kind of going to that phrase beauty in the eye of the beholder and all that if you're not a part of that culture then you might not see it the same way someone else does uh and if you're being told that it's famous sometimes all you can do is just kind of shrug and be like all right i guess if a lot of you say that it is then it might be (laughs) yeah it's it's definitely a shared relationship it's not art is so often a reaction to the culture, either representing it or pushing against it. Uh, it's never just a thing that exists. So, you know, when you're world building and working on any artistic piece of it, it's my opinion that either you've already got the culture figured out and you are reflecting on it in some way, 
as you know an artist would do or you're trying to build that culture and you know that you really want people just painting krakens on everything because krakens are cool i guess i don't know yeah yeah. (laughs) unleash the kraken yeah there you go So, you know, if you've decided I want these people to love Krakens and uh, paint them on everything, well, why? And so at that point, you're doing the reverse of what I just said. You're building the culture based on things that they are doing. So you have to find reasons that they are, you know, painting this creature on everything. Maybe they live near it. Maybe they work with it. Maybe they ride Krakens. I don't know. It's world building. Go nuts. Yeah, I think the big takeaway here is not just don't just describe the piece of art, but to describe why it's important. Um, The Statue of Liberty is a really good example. You could say it's a huge bronze statue of a lady holding a torch wearing a dress. That's it. And it's not very interesting. But we all know there's a really deep meaning behind it and a lot of history to it. So, like, when you're putting this statue painting or whatever in your world building, um, you're not just describing what it looks like, but you want to actually tell, you know, why is it there and why is it important? And also considering what it means to people. So, for example, using the Statue of Liberty, that's a piece of, uh, I don't know if this is the right term here, but optimistic or positive propaganda. Uh, basically, the, you, you know, the United States put put it there as to be seen as uh, people are coming to live in the country for a very specific reason. They want to show, you know, that um, the United States is a land of freedom of uh, possibility and, you know, all these things that the nation has historically been associated with. Uh, yeah, like welcoming the, the downtrodden and the, uh, the unwelcome elsewhere and those, uh, you know, looking for a better life, basically. Uh, I really enjoyed how uh, both Adam and BK described essentially what art does for culture, um, using it as a reflection. And Adam specifically mentioned, like, oh, you have this facet in their art now, so now you can figure out the details. And that's that's actually a really good way of approaching world building is you have this motif, you have this central point that you identify and now you can run along with it and figure stuff out for this facet of the setting of your world. Um, but Adam also brought up another point I wanted to touch a bit on, a bit more on, and that's using it for contrast. Uh, I think it can be a great tool in for the life of me, I can't think of a good example right now, but I think it'd be a great tool of showing and really displaying art, whether visual arts or performing arts, is from that of a possible foreigner or a newcomer to a culture, someone who doesn't understand it and has to kind of come in and absorb now this world around them. And for a world builder, uh, I think that that point of view can be a very valuable way for not only integrating an audience into a world, but also yourself as you're, you might still be figuring things out. And sorry, go ahead. And that's a really good point that I'm making eight makes about um, having somebody come into a culture that's not familiar with it. And it's actually a really common literary device called a reader's advocate 
where you have somebody who is unfamiliar with a setting or a situation and they see it through fresh eyes so that they can convey that reaction and learn that information for the reader to have a reason to be told that instead of just info dumping. Um, good example of that would be Harry Potter entering the wizarding world for the first time, with never having experienced any of that. Or the kids from uh, the Narnia books going into Narnia for the first time. And even something as subtle as uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes books, where you've got the partnership between Sherlock Holmes and John Watt, Dr. John Watson. And Watson provides that reader's advocate where Sherlock can explain his deductive reasoning to somebody. So it's a pretty common um, device where you can uh, kind of show your your world or your setting your concepts to your reader through a character that doesn't know what's going on. I know that it's a pretty um, widely used device. Even Tolkien uses it with a lot of the Hobbit characters, especially Merry and Pippin, who essentially exist in the first two books to do essentially nothing else except be reader's advocate. Yeah, that's a really example, good example. You know, even um, Frodo had never, none of them had ever left the Shire before. So really all four of them are experiencing all of that for the first time. Yeah, like um, Frodo at the Council of Elrond. Perfect time for the, probably my favorite info dump of all time. And having a reader's advocate allows you to view the world and things about it, like all the pictures and songs from Rivendell that Frodo gets to learn just by going there and, um, you know, setting up things like Arendel the Mariner with his song. Um, what a beautiful way to put performing arts into your world building. Am I right, everyone? Yeah, exactly. I think the performing arts are very rarely in, in fantasy fiction, um, or just in fiction in general, uh, unless it's like crime or something awful. <laughs> I think you see um, music, um, you know, like how Tolkien did. I, I've seen other authors do the same thing, where they have uh, like verse of music in their in their books. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is you know, bards are huge in fantasy storytelling, especially. Uh, you know, you see Dandelion from The Witcher. Uh, how many tossing a coin to people? Oh, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> Every tavern and. Skyrim and the Song of Ragnar the Red. I, I meant more so the like uh, thespian arts, like plays. Yeah, um, I, I would agree that's not as popular. Uh, I, I do recall seeing a little bit of it in A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones. Um, there's a there's a there's a little bit in one of the books, but joffrey's wedding they have the play that they do there and there's also i believe one across the narrow sea that aria goes to yeah but that yeah. they don't really show the play it's more just a device to that anyways um hey it's art being used as a as a literary device yeah you know what just popped into my head was in um thor ragnarok the play in uh that scene. yes that was uh yep. it tied into the plot really well too and they play it off as like a tool for uh, a joke, but like it legitimately sets up the story perfectly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like I said, it, it ties into the plot. It sets everything up. It uh, has a character reveal. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. No, you should have seen it by now. Mm -hmm. It's a, so to that point, I think it's a, it's one of those tools that will probably 
be a scene of itself if you chose to include like a play in a narrative scene or kind of a play in world building because there's a lot of I, I like to think there's a lot of moving parts to something like a performing arts a play uh, as a dino put it like the thespian arts that you want to cover or else you lose kind of the impact and nuance so it is an investment creative wise and time wise to write it out so when you do put it in you want it to have that oomph that um memor uh to be memorable for whoever watches it and i guess to connect it to uh the reader's advocate that would be a good thing to also show a reader's advocate is why are they pottering with this uh very elaborate perhaps elaborate production if there wasn't some significance to it in this culture you can also get a lot you can also get a lot of information from the play in terms of who the actors are uh the actresses uh the perf- the, the things around the performance uh, so, for example, I spent some time studying in college again. Uh, London plays um, seven, late 17th, early 18th century, I believe. And that was kind of an interesting time just because you were only just beginning to see women begin to write plays. Um Afra Benz the Rover comes to mind. She was a playwright. And for a long time, you didn't even really see women perform. Uh, men would dress up as women and play the part. So, you know, if you have a culture in your world that is doing a similar thing, you can make a lot of, uh, you can learn a lot from the fact that they only have male performers or, you know, flip it on its head. They only have female performers. Um, kind of get a sense of what is expected of different genders in that example. And it can also be a way to, um, you know, convey more information about the world. Um, like I'm going said, you definitely need to devote like a scene to it, but you can, you know, relay historical facts through it. And um, you talk about looking at the ancillary things like uh, who's performing in the play stuff. Also looking at the audience, you know, is it something, you know, that only the elite have access to or is it something intended to, uh, you know, satiate the crowd and the unwashed masses and keep them entertained and distracted from their problems? You know, what kind of uh, social ramifications do the performing arts play uh, in the society? And it, yeah, and, and it definitely steps to show um, some societal customs as well, especially historical views on actors were not always the best. And further on, like you see things where actors could be anything from in the black market to doing any kind of illicit act to being spies. And it was all just kind of this, I guess, like lore in our own world wrapped around them as to how you could assume what a troop of actors would act and do. Because they're vagabonds of sort who'd float around. Yeah, you could dig into like a counterculture movement where maybe the play is some sort of political protest. Propaganda? In my art? No way. Oops. We'll segue, I think, from here into the issue itself, really. And we have 
we have quite a few articles, a lot of them really good. I assume. (laughs) (laughs) uh, So tell me, which of the articles do each of you guys enjoy the most to read? Oh, man, that's not fair. (laughs) I hate you. That's, That's not a fair question. You know what? All of them. I love them all. I read through all of them, so I love them all. That's a cop out. You said you didn't read. Can I say that like mine best? <laughs> that, you know what? That's fair. Yeah, actually, I really like the the propaganda one um, that we were talking about earlier. That is probably one of my favorites in there. Um, and then the one that I wrote um, about um, you know religion and art and how uh, basically kind of explores. I, I started off thinking you know of, of like the big picture and cathedrals and big statues and stuff and the. The more I dug into doing research on it, I realized that there's so many little tiny aspects like, you know, little idols in your pocket or, you know, the um, charms on a necklace, stuff like that, where, you know, religion can infuse everyday part of people's lives and they carry it around with them. And um, it really came became a study of how um, art can bring religion from the temple and the big statues into everyday parts of life and pottery. And little statues in your pocket and things in your home. Mm-hmm. And how that can also integrate into like wider society itself. Uh, I think what the I also enjoyed reading yours because I was thinking, you know what, this is all true. But uh, what kind of related to me in real life is I started thinking about accessories. Like there is a pretty significant market for people who buy into religious accessories like crucifixes or rosaries. Or um, kind of, um, I don't. I think the right word is vanity stuff, like things that you can wear in apparel that reflect their religious beliefs. And while it's not the focus of your article, of course, it's kind of a evolution into the modern day, into modern culture, and uh, the, into uh, con- I guess modern day consumerism is that this stuff exists. But there was a kind of root to it, and that is bringing religion beyond those temples, beyond places of worship. Yeah, it's definitely something that's it's still you can see it around you today. And it goes all the way back to some of the earliest examples in prehistory um, where people have you know latched onto these icons and wanted them close to themselves. Yeah, that is a really interesting topic to cover. And it's one that a lot, a lot of people bring up. I know that in a lot of um, novels I've read, it doesn't come up too often that someone carries an icon of their God with them or their religion, unless they're incredibly devout, like zealot. Yeah. Like you see it on like the, the clerics and stuff, but you don't see it on, you know, the ordinary people. And it, it really is something that infuses every part of the culture. I think they can also connect to um a matter of finance. Uh, I guess I immediately thought of like fantasy and stuff, and like people probably couldn't afford to buy like let's say what would be the equivalent of a crucifix, like a, one of those hand the smaller ones that you can wear around your neck. They might have one for the home that everyone could share, but for like the average Joe peasant commoner that just farms for a living, it would be a luxury to acquire something. It'd probably be a very um, a treasured item that would get passed on to generations if they did have one. But that's my initial thought of it. They also would have things like hand-carved ones out of wood and such. That's true. Yeah, and like, uh, you know, one of the first examples is the Venus von Willendorf. 
um, which was a, a small ceramic figure that was only about, I think, two inches tall um, from about 25 to 28,000 years ago. Um, and that's something, you know, like I said, a little icon that you can carry around in your pocket. It's just a little clay figure. So, you know, it doesn't have to be gold and platinum and, you know, exotic beads and stuff like that. You know, it can be, you know, a wood carving or, you know, a wood crucifix or uh, a clay figure or something like that. You know, it, it can be something accessible to the masses. But you can look at your economic disparity, too, and say, you know, if the average person has the clay or the wood figure, then, you know, what are the wealthy carrying around, you know, the jewel-encrusted golden idol or something like that? But, um, and since you mentioned it like that, if this, I guess, uh, I'll, I'll partly retract my initial statement that it might not be as common, but now it's making me think how common it really was and how often, um, perhaps in the past, either archaeologists or historians kind of seen these items and perhaps put it off to the side and not seeing significance to them, when in the past, perhaps it was a religious icon or an item that had some importance, but was simply lost to time. Or perhaps because of the quality, it didn't, uh, it didn't maintain the same recognizable aspects of perhaps icon iconography for a for a religious following so it's a, it's those little things and not even just little things those details in world building that gives it the extra level of um, connectivity from the past to the present as well as between kind of the ex uh, the, the expression of discrepancies between those who do have certain resources and those who don't in all while through essentially art all art all the way from then, from the little mother of clay to, you know, the Hagia Sophia. Yeah, and, and you know, we talk a lot of in the in the magazine and in these podcasts about tying different aspects of world building together. And um, you know, that's a, a good way to tie in your art and your economics is you know, who has access to what and you know, what uh quality level and things like that. So Talking about quality level is definitely a really interesting one, and you don't really see it used, I think, as often as it could be, especially as a comparison, when you can start off by describing what the lower strata have to explain, like, the difference between them and the upper strata. I think, you know, we, we mentioned materials, and that's, you know, a really, uh, probably an easy way to do it, you know, admittedly, but, you know, a realistic way to look at it where, you know, what materials do they have access to? Um, you could also look at the professionalism, where is something just like hand carved by the average Joe versus something done by, you know, a revered artist who is his work is in demand and limited supply. You know, everything from uh, your your kids, you know, drawing on the refrigerator door to a Picasso. Who was it that did the murals for the church and didn't like the Pope? So he did. Uh, he made the Pope one of the. Devils, was it? Or Satan? I can't remember who it is. Michelangelo? Yes, him. I don't know if I heard about that. You know what the most interesting part about Michelangelo is for me? Like, beside all the struggle he went through as a kid and, like, growing up becoming an artist and coming into his own, is that he did it all while being a turtle. <laughs> I was waiting for the turtle reference. I wasn't sure if it was coming, but I was waiting for it. Why would you do this to me? <laughs> I think being raised by a rat was an obstacle. Doesn't matter how wise that rat is, that was the time of the bubonic plague. That was not a wise choice. 
What? <laughs> so art <laughs> comes from anywhere. Italy's the birthplace of pizza, though. So he had that going for him. Hey, Makine, tell me about a random article. I I enjoyed uh, the our next or the next installment of the Thirty Three Tales of War serial, uh, because uh, for one, it touched on what we were talking about with the actors, and one of them, I'm not gonna spoil it, but uh, it was a nice way of um, showing how, at this point, different visual arts as well as performing arts can weave itself into different facets of society, and you see that in this active world building in a fictional work um these are set these are the 33 tales of war for those of you who have not read them i highly recommend them um they're in a they're in a few issues issues at this point starting from beginning from last year uh they are essentially short stories set in um emery glass's world and i uh i, I really enjoy it every time there is a piece that makes it to the issue yeah and just to uh toss this out there as well if you are interested in reading her flash fiction stories. Uh, they begin in our technology issue from, I believe it was back in April, 2019. Uh, and then there aren't any more until December, 2019. And then this will be the third installment of the, uh, of the series with us. So yeah, it's been awesome to see that world continue to grow. Uh, each one takes on a different perspective uh, within the world. And at this point, we're starting to see them kind of tie together really well. Um, and it's just really neat how I think uh, from a story perspective, I love what uh, Emery did, especially with the healer who, you know, you imagine going into the story, it's titled the healer and you expect them to be healing someone. Instead, this person is trying to get into war and, uh, you know, they've got their own reasons for that, which again, I won't get into, but, um, I just, I enjoy when the story kind of takes on a different turn than you expect. And if the author can, rationalize that well like emory did with that particular story really just adds to it a lot it's simple adam in video games the best kind of healing is beating up the enemy faction <laughs> you don't need to heal your teammates if you out damage them all right adam random article choose one all right so this issue was interesting just because not only were we working with uh not only were we working with some new artists uh whose work is represented within it we're also working on a new layout we did we did work on the new layout you can see that now in the new issue and in addition uh, of course, all of the regular stuff that goes on with getting the articles, vetting them, editing them, uh, and making them, you know, as airtight as we possibly can before it goes out. One that really impressed me was the art of dressing cultures. Uh, Inky and Zyvi worked on that together, uh, but as I understand it, Inky put in uh, a lot of the 
work and she illustrated the whole thing herself as well. Uh, and in the background, she was also one of the people working on our new layout design. So big props to Inky for everything that she did this issue. Um, you know, I, I think the, the layout turned out better for her input and the article, uh, I know that she and Zavi had been working on it for a couple months. They, they started real early. Yes, it's a very comprehensive. I, I, I'm going to give them the props for that. It's like a, there's a good bit of information and I highly recommend that for people to get through it. Yeah, we we didn't put all of the sources and references that they used in the article even. Uh, if you go to our blog, there's going to be the time this airs, there should be a blog post up there where we have the full list of uh, all of the references and uh, resources that Inky uses when she's learning about, you know, different dressing and uh, clothing styles from history. And uh, so that's pretty exciting. But yeah, the, the article goes into detail and I mean, I per I personally learned a lot. There were a couple times I had to kind of step back and be like, "All right, I am reviewing this. I can't just read it <laughs> because I I don't know a whole lot." And so uh, there were some comments I remember writing on that article where it's just like, "Does this work?" Because I legitimately don't know. Uh, can we try this? Does that go against the logic of what you have here? Um, so I always love articles like that because they kind of force me to learn something new as well, uh, which most of them usually do. But uh, the art of dressing cultures especially uh, did that for me because, you know, when I'm writing something, I typically don't focus too much on the clothing. I typically don't illustrate uh, much beyond the various maps of my world. The two character portraits I have right now I did from, like, the shoulders up, so there's almost no clothing involved. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that would definitely be one of the highlights for me for this issue. Uh, in part because of the way it so effortlessly gives you a lot of information, but also just the fact that I know the authors put a ton of work into it. Mm-hmm. And it really made me think of um, ways to expand on how I use visual kind of a uh, visual descriptors because I I do love not I do love I love doing it I'm not great at it but I do love describing what characters look like and what they're wearing as a matter of characterization and because I'm always an advocate that good characters make for good world building because then you can use them as lenses but now it's making me think well that means that when I'm thinking of how I'm describing clothing and fashion and what, what they choose to wear and present themselves with, now I can have this additional insight as to how that relates to the their, their culture, where they came from, who they are, or perhaps if they've chosen to eschew all that. Uh, it, it's a lot of food for thought. Um, and the fact that they go into it very well, despite not putting everything that they could have put into it, uh, it's a, it's very commendable effort. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that was definitely one of my favorites too. And you know, like Adam said, I learned a lot from it. 
um, about, um, you know, to just try to hit on a new point because everybody's said a lot about it already. Um, but looking at how uh, fashion develops and, you know, the, the kind of key features that go into designing and how it grows over time within a culture is something I had never even really put a lot of thought into. And, you know, I really got to see that from a different angle, which was awesome. So I guess kind of on this topic and everything, what kind of work do you guys put into your worlds, your settings with, you know, the outfits and costumes and uniforms that people will wear? I mentioned the last time uh, or in one of the other podcasts, but or maybe in a future podcast, I don't know. I go for analogs, so I tend to take from different cultures that I've seen that I like the aesthetic of, or I think there are connections between a character's history and the kind of um, the source culture for the fashion. And I tend to use that. Uh, so for example, I go for that a lot of Western European dress because I have Western European influenced cultures and in, in my, uh, in my campaign setting. And Beyond that, I don't really think too much about the aesthetic part. Uh, I don't think in that matter, I suppose. But I do think about the practicality part, especially for characters that would be, for example, adventurers. They would be soldiers or fighters or perhaps spies. And so their dress should reflect all that. Yeah, I do pretty much the same thing where I'll look at, you know, what kind of historical culture my fictional culture is based on and, you know, what kind of clothing they had and kind of translate that over. Um, you know, like I said, that article opened my eyes a lot to look at things in a different way. So I think that'll be something I can learn and grow from. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to follow the tropes on it. Um, I don't focus a lot on clothing. I, you know, spend more time on the action. Um, but like I'll have my hard boiled detective, I'll throw him in a fedora and a trench coat and call it a day. Um, you know, get on with business. Yeah, I, I, I do a similar thing. I'll try and find something that I can kind of identify the character with. So, for example, uh, somewhere along the line, I sort of thought to myself, you know, scarves aren't used a whole lot. So uh, I've got this whole group of elite uh, sorcerers and sorceresses who uh, guard the queen in my world. And they've all got these really long scarves, and that kind of sets them apart from other people at a glance. Uh, so from a storytelling perspective, that works very well. However, it's recently come to my attention that the capital is very close to the equator. And scarves in that region could be kind of hot. They're, they're sweat rags, not scarves. <laughs> um, so, you also have scarves like Afghans. Uh, Middle Eastern cultures and something like a Shemag or you know, something like that. Where... I, think I, I think I just need to rewrite it. Keep the sun off of them and stuff. You just don't call it a scarf. Yeah, I, I think I just need to rewrite it to better reflect the fact that it's like a very light material and all that. So I can still keep the art that I made. <laughs> or it could be a flex. Because they don't care <laughs> if they're hot. They're strong, yeah, powerful it's, uh, people. It's a sign of machismo. <laughs> Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> Uh, to kind of digress for a moment, see though, um, you know, thinking again about my my detective in the trench coat fedora, um, you know, kind of in defense of the lazy costuming, is you know, 
having that sense of familiarity can kind of help your reader get into the character's shoes too. Um, you know, no pun intended with the shoes. Um, but it might make it easier for them to get, you know, um, into that perspective without worrying too much about it. So there's definitely a place to balance and it depends on what your priorities are with your writing. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. You know, it's not always the best choice to, especially in writing, devote too much time to clothing and, you know, the garb of the day. Because, you know, unless it matters to the character and to the story, then it doesn't matter to the reader. You know, there are exceptions. Uh, and I think it's important to have some pieces of that still represented like the fedora or the scarf in my example but yeah it's important not to kind of like we've talked about a couple times now not to bore the reader with over explanation lore dumps all these things yeah it depends a lot on your on your writing style too you know how much you go into it like my writing style is a pulp style so it's um you know getting into the action you know, other people might take more time kind of building up, setting the, dressing the characters, dressing the set, and kind of immersing you more in the um, trappings of everything instead of just diving right into the action like I do. So there's a lot of different approaches to it. Personally, I like set dressing um, a lot. And I love the idea of co <laughs> of costuming, like creating what your characters are wearing. But the thing is, is that I've always found that you can have like a basic ideas of what they're wearing and that's easy to say in a few words. What the focus should always be is kind of, in my opinion, like you said, the fedora, the scarf, that, that piece of the costume that's iconic. Uh, and it could be minor characters. I remember an interview with George R. R. Martin who was talking about how fans will come up to him and tell him who their favorite characters are. And sometimes it'll just be, like, oh, I like that guy. He's my favorite character. And he had two lines, but he had like this cloak of raven feathers and like, you know, small items like that kind of put it all together for people because it sticks in their mind. And that's what they that's what they like. That's what they want to have this keystone. Yeah, for sure. You know, even though that character only had like two lines, they still made an impact because of the way they were presented. Uh, and clothing is a big part of that because, you know, so often we hear about, you know, the knight in shining armor, you know, that's part of his uniform, you know, more or less, um, or, you know, the cloaks and daggers for rogues. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, the nobility in their silks, the dresses and such. The ruffled uh, collars. Yep. <laughs> Pirates and eye patches. Yeah. Uh, Pirates the, are disgusting and gross. Yeah. The wigs that people used to wear. You know, all all of these things come together to paint a picture, and even if you only touch on it very briefly, uh, it does help add to the impression uh, a reader or a player in your game or whatever the case may be it leaves an impression on them i definitely definitely agree and i mean i guess it is kind of my point so thank you for agreeing with me <laughs> hey i got you <laughs> <laughs> and like i in my D, D games i love to use just like either like a quick description of what like the person looks like and then always try to accentuate it with one or two items that they have to kind of 
sell who they are and what they are. Like you said, the cloak and dagger, they instantly know that that person is up to literally no good. <laughs> I had a cloak and dagger rogue that um, I showed them a picture. I didn't describe it. And his nickname for like the first year and a half of my campaign was uh, Mr. Hot Pants because he had these rather tight leather pants in the picture. And I, that wasn't how I wanted that impression to go because he was a very, very uh, proficient rogue. But that's what they remembered. So I guess disclaimer there is uh, sometimes players will see what they want to see if you're in a tabletop campaign. Yeah, and it's also about how many things that people can remember at a time. Uh, if they don't know a character, if they haven't spent a lot of time with them, uh, then they're only going to remember those one or two things like you were saying, Dino. Uh, so if it's that, you know, you're telling them this guy's, you know, he's got this long cloak, he's got these long daggers, whatever the case may be. Uh, and, you know, if that's what you're telling them, then that's great. But if you give too much, then they might, you know, not remember the right things or get confused about the person. Um, and then I guess, of course, if you show them a picture, you're kind of at their mercy. <laughs> you definitely are at your player's mercy when you show them pictures. <laughs> what a new move! A good example of that talking about you know a character they haven't seen in a while, making them familiar. Um, looking at the uh, the Drizzt books by R.A. Salvatore, one of the villains there, Jarlaxle. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing either of his names right. <laughs> he was a dark elf with a big swashbuckler hat with a feather and an eye patch, and you know he looked like a pirate, but you know none of these characters did. You know, your typical high you know high fantasy. Um, but those things, the hat, the feather, and the eye patch, you know, as soon as you describe that guy, you might not remember his name, but you remember him, you know, from like four books ago. Oh, it's that guy again. It, he is a pretty iconic character, and it is one of those things where it's like, oh, God, no, it's him. I love that guy. I mean, he's pretty great. He's definitely one of the better supporting characters. <clears throat> but yes, I think that costuming is really important to take into account when you're creating characters because it can really help cement and anchor them into your setting and the purpose you want them to play because in the end every character plays a purpose just like every device does whether it be the way that they dress the monuments they make the books they write the songs they sing or you know the plays people get shot at it's all kind of in the end just a device to tell a story you know, you mentioned, um, or we mentioned set dressing, you know, that, that's what a lot of it is, is set dressing. You're establishing, you know, what kind of world are you dealing with, what kind of culture it is, you know, and you're just expressing that through these little bits and details. I do love just the going in way too much minutia about the set. It's it's a downfall. Just sprinkling little tiny details here and there, and it makes it feel lived in. Um, and that's something I, I always advocate and that I do with my books where you know, uh, instead of talking about this whole um, nautical, you know, trade culture, I'll just talk about, you know, uh, fishmonger and some the smell of steamed crabs and uh, some dock hands up unloading some ships as somebody walks by. And, you know, you get the idea. Also a great way to avoid exposition or lore dumping when you when you pretty much make it more active rather than a background thing. Yeah, yeah. Make it, you know, the, the character experience the culture. Don't tell the reader what the culture is. Have the character live in the culture. Yeah, and as you build up those smaller reference points, like the uh, signature items of clothing, the occasional 
example of, you know, looking at the architecture around the characters and the environment they're in, you know, it eventually starts to build this picture of what the culture is like, what the area is like. You begin to notice things that look out of place, like if, um, you know, you have someone show up in modern day clothing that's going to be a red flag that something is wrong here. Or, you know, maybe it's on purpose to catch your attention. Point being that all of these small moments add up to a cohesive, or they should add up to a cohesive total view of the world and of the region that it's set in. It's like every little detail you put in is a brushstroke and you're painting a bigger picture. So this is getting a little bit beyond the issue that we just put out, but uh, I am curious since I don't think we've really gotten to talk a whole lot about writing you and I, BK. And we're kind of on this topic anyway. When you are setting up for one of your books, these moments of reflection on a character or the society they're in, uh, the place they're in. Do you organize that in any way of like uh, prepping ahead of time? You know, these are the signature items. These are the signature features that I'm going to talk about. Uh, or is it something that you more discoverable in the way? I would say it's a little bit of both. I usually have like the big picture in my mind. Um, so like with the dwarves I mentioned before, I knew it was, you know, uh, a proud warrior society that revered their, um, you know, their, their warrior caste above all others. And the, the craftsmen were going to be the downtrodden and the, uh, um, the neglected. Um, or like with my uh, Ravencrest setting where it's, you know, a nautical dark fantasy theme. You know, I'll, I'll have that big picture in my mind. And then as I write, like, even my, my plot outlines are really basic. I don't do a lot of planning at a time. I have like a basic plot outline and like with the world building, like I said, I have that big picture in mind. And then as I write, I kind of discover those moments and I'll have the, okay, the, I'm trying to introduce a character. So I want to introduce him as a thief. I might have him breaking into a shop and stealing something. Um, it's in the harbor. He's stealing fish and steamed crab. So, so, so it, those elements just kind of like work themselves in a little bit at a time. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. I just I find that I always find that kind of question interesting because authors so often have different ways of doing things. Uh, I find a lot of people stress over it, either a great deal or maybe not enough. Uh, I think having a balance is a really good thing because, you know, I've met people who are planning, you know, some story and they've been working on the magic system for like three years and that's totally fine. But if your end goal is to, you know, write a story, you know, at some point you have to kind of say it is what it is and move on. Or, you know, just start writing and discover it along the way and work with that. Uh, I know for myself, I'll often, you know, not really have something planned out ahead of time. I think the scarves might have been one of those things where uh, I hadn't exactly thought through, you know, what this group's 
attire is going to be. But as I got to writing it, I didn't, I didn't want to just talk about the, you know, color of the uniform. I didn't just want to talk about how stiff the material was or something. I wanted to have a, a different significant feature. Uh, and that just kind of naturally led to a scarf and I kept it. So yeah, I, I think I think the takeaway I'm trying to get to here is just, you know, let yourself kind of go and write and see what happens sometimes and where you can, you know, a little planning can definitely be helpful, especially with these more intricate uh, societal things like clothing and art and architecture, uh, because there are so many pieces to it. And, you know, not everyone is going to look at them the same way. Some aspects are going to be looked down on, some are going to be admired, uh, some are going to be ignored. Yeah, everybody definitely has a different way of approaching, you know, uh, writing um, different methods and techniques and, um, you know, planning everything out ahead of time versus discovery writing. Um, but yeah, for, for me, you know, ha having that big picture in mind is the big thing. And then, you know, as I get into writing, you know, I find the little elements. And um, I, I think having the big picture in mind before you go into it, no matter what method you're using, having a vision before you start is definitely important so that everything has consistency. Um, you know, and the more you make it up as you go along, the more you have to go back and make sure it's consistent, you know, in the revision process. Um, discovery writing leads to a lot of editing, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've hit that a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, it's just nature of the beast. Let's um, get some final thoughts on art. What do you guys think? Could be about the magazine, could be about art and world building in general. Just something to parse it all together. Uh, yeah, I. this issue has, uh, for those who are readers, um, we put a poll up on our Discord server to let our readers and community vote on what upcoming issues will be about and i think the arts had been up about three or four times and it had lost each time and finally uh, a couple of months ago it was voted in much to uh our happiness it had been something a lot of the people in uh admin had been wanting for a while so it's just it's been nice to work on it it feels uh, good to have it be our first issue of 2020. Uh, people put a lot of work into it, into the new layout. Uh, huge thanks to Inky and Tristan, who bore the the majority of that. Really hope you guys like it. And you know, to all of our artists who put it together, to the writers and editors who made the content all just fantastic with regards to the topic and what's in this issue uh, i think you guys are gonna love it we've got a mix of some stories some information about you know clothing as we talked about the religious aspect i put in an article about gender dynamics being reflected in art which i'm pretty happy about 
kind of got me excited about writing again. And I went ahead and in, I think, two weeks after submitting that, wrote articles for the next two issues. So those will be coming later. And then Dino and I put together a list of close to 200 writing prompts and world-building prompts, uh, which definitely check out. I think we'll be posting a simpler version up on our blog as well for that. Just something that you can print out and it'll be probably like four pages instead of whatever this issue was, 60 plus probably. So yeah, I'm proud of the issue. I think that art is a very important thing to look at in world building, which is unfortunately not looked at enough. As you could probably tell from the conversation today. And uh, yeah, I'm just glad we got a chance to talk about it. Yeah, I'd like to say I, I learned a lot from reading through the articles that were submitted for the issue. Um, everybody did a fantastic job. I'm really proud of everybody that wrote for the issue. Um, and, you know, everything in there, um, you know, it's not just talking about the art itself, but it's talking about how it ties into cultures and um, sociology, um, people's beliefs, um, their traditions, their uh, goals and ambitions, the economics, you know, all that all ties in together. Uh, the art's a really neat way to see how that all reflects on the surface uh, of the world. Um, and it's a good way to tie all that together and present it to your audience. So I think it's a really important topic to to look at. And this issue really covers a lot of those bases really well. going to hop on this kudos train. Uh, the arts is going to be a fantastic start to this year, uh, to the volume. I'm so proud of everyone that's worked on it. Uh, from writers, editors, artists, of course, layout, and of course, all of uh, the support and uh, the meta team in the magazine that makes it, that helps make us able to do all this. Uh, and I guess regarding the arts issue itself and the overall overarching theme, the arts, I, I like to think of world building as like an onion. It has a lot of layers and being able to reflect the arts as one of those layers is kind of this idea that I've, I've been mulling over. Uh, because there's a lot of ways to depict a culture, depict your world. And the arts, as Adam mentioned, tends to be one of the ways that it happens, but it's not often discussed. And hopefully, once you read this issue, you'll have a lot more inspiration or things to pull from to make the arts a very valuable tool for reflecting your world. And uh, just a final note, uh, we're kind of sending thanks to everyone outside of this podcast, but I want to just acknowledge the people in here who helped make it possible. Uh, BK, as the writing chair for us, uh, helped oversee all of the submissions, and Makane, as the editorial chair, helped me go through all of the uh, initial vetting for edits and has helped throughout that process filling in where needed for additional editing um you guys are fantastic and i don't think we would have as great a end product here without you so thank you fully agreed and just a note i didn't get left out i just don't do anything around here they haven't figured it out yet you do the podcast <laughs> <laughs> 
well, Adam, your your leadership really holds everything together, and I think it's time for a group hug now. Thanks, All right, Adam. I'm on the way. <laughs> All right, hug it out. Hug it out. So I think I will quickly state just that art is important, and it has more to offer to you because world building is art. It is a device you use for self-expression, to tell a story, to get a point across, to change the world a little bit at a time. And leave you with a quote from my favorite turtle. Every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. Michelangelo. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the new issue. You've been tuned into Worldcasting, an affiliate production of Worldbuilding Magazine. Have any feedback, comments, questions, or concerns? You can get in touch with us on our website, worldbuildingmagazine.com. There you can find links to our social media. Or feel free to come chat with us on the World Building Magazine Discord server. Thanks for listening to Worldcasting, and until next week, keep worldbuilding. building.